This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 201, entitled, An Appeal to Seek Truth. Yes, in this episode, I'm going to offer many of my reflections, having published 200 episodes in this podcast in consecutive weeks, without missing a single week, I might add, in regard to truth, why truth is important, and why we need to consider pursuing it more fully. Now, this might come as a surprise to some of you who think that you already possess the truth. God has already led you to the truth. You have already found the truth, and you embrace the truth, and you believe the truth, and you teach the truth, and you proclaim the truth. Well, if you're someone that thinks like that, then this episode is, of course, going to be beneficial to you. If you're someone who is still trying to figure some things out, you will also benefit from this particular episode. These are just the insights in regard to truth and the need to continually look for it after producing 200 episodes. Because in 200 episodes, I have learned a lot. I've learned a lot about the one true God and about the humanity of Jesus. But the interesting thing is that there's also quite a lot that I have figured out that I don't know. In other words, while I have learned a substantial amount of information and data, I have come to realize that there is still a lot of information that I don't know. And I wanted to talk about truth and the things that I have learned in regard to the, the search of truth that I have come to realize over the last four years. And so I've broken down the various thoughts that I had into 10 bullet points. What sort of insights have I come to see about the pursuit of truth after publishing a weekly podcast for the last four years? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point is that truth is worth pursuing. Truth is worth pursuing because there is a lot of misinformation out there and when we hold on to misinformation, it's kind of embarrassing. We say something that is wrong, or it's incorrect, or maybe if we're telling a lie, and we are caught in that regard, it's embarrassing. We don't want to hold on to something in which we are misinformed. In fact, misinformation could cost you in some very serious ways. It could cost you your health. In fact, misinformation about God, Jesus, and the kingdom of God could cost you your salvation. Truth is worth pursuing, and so we need to find good sources in our pursuit of truth. We need to have good teachers that are going to teach us truth. We need to have a good church community, and our church community needs to be okay with us asking good 
genuine questions, not antagonistic questions. Nobody likes that. But we need to be in a community where we can ask questions when we are trying to figure out what is true. And if you are a leader of a church, maybe you're listening to this and you're a pastor or you're a Sunday school teacher or you're an elder, you need to create an environment to where people feel comfortable asking questions. Because when they can't ask questions or they don't feel comfortable asking questions or they feel like if they ask a question, they're going to get shot down or they're going to look like that they're silly or they're stupid, then truth is blocked off from being learned and being communicated. Truth is very much worth pursuing. My second point is that seeking truth to replace error and misinformation actually helps us to live out part of what it means to be in the image of God. What do I mean by that? Well, when you read Genesis chapter 1, you can see that the creator is someone that takes chaos and disorder and disarray and he organizes it into a place of order and peace. He takes this darkness that's over the surface of the deep and he speaks life and light to that and he brings order. And so when God says that it is good, it is not only saying that something is right and correct and wholesome, God is establishing that he has brought order to chaos. Possessing truth brings order to chaos in our lives. Speaking truth can bring order to chaos. It can bring wholeness to a situation. Speaking truth can get people out of bad habits. It can get people out of ruts. It can save broken relationships. Speaking truth can save broken marriages. Speaking truth can bring about the faith that leads to salvation. So keep in mind that our pursuit of truth is actually something that helps us to live out what it means to be in the image of God. Point number three, our knowledge is severely limited. Our knowledge is severely limited. And I want you just to think about this for a second, because you might think that you have been highly educated, maybe you're college educated, maybe you have a graduate degree, maybe you've read 500 books. But if you take all the information that's out there in the world, and then you look at all the information that you know and possess and understand, we actually know less than 1% of all the information that is just out there. Less than 1%. In that regard, we know very, very little. Our knowledge is so limited. Even the most studied people within your church, your pastor, your Sunday school teacher, Maybe that person is you. Maybe you're the most knowledgeable person within your church. You do not know enough. Your pastor does not know enough. And I'm not saying this in a way to be derogatory. I'm pointing this out to indicate the fact that we are limited in our current situations. We are finite. And just the amount of information and data that's out there is so enormous. And we need to properly put ourselves in perspective as we look for truth. 
let me kind of put this in the perspective of someone who takes a test. We've all been to school, we've all received tests and examinations. I want you to imagine that you sit down to take a test and you look at the test and you're reading the questions and you're assessing how well you're going to do on this test as you're filling out the answers. And the test has 100 questions, but you don't know the answers to any of the questions. Maybe you know the answer to one, one question, one out of 100. So you turn that test in and you're not feeling very confident about that. You get the test back and sure enough, you got one question out of 100 right. One out of 100. How embarrassing would that be? How demoralizing would that be? And let me ask you, would you go around and flaunt that score? Would you go around and say, hey, look, I made a one out of 100? I mean, that's an F. That's a failure. Would that test get posted on your refrigerator to show off to the rest of your family? That's the amount of information we know compared to the data and information that is just out there. Now, scholars, biblical scholars, will spend their entire lives becoming specialists in only a few small areas of the Bible because they can't know everything about the Bible. There simply is just way too much data. And the fact that our knowledge is limited should turn us to have a particular attitude about ourselves. That brings us to our fourth point. Point number four is that truth-seeking should be done in humility, in patience, and with care. We should have humility, we should have patience, and we should operate with a very careful mindset. Since we just don't know enough, we must be humble in our desire to seek truth. If you claim that I have found the truth, that could potentially be very dangerous. Now, you may actually have stumbled upon things that are truthful. That is true. But to say that you have arrived, that you've finished the race, that you've learned all that you need to know so that you can sit back and retire and stop pursuing truth, that's a very, very dangerous position to be in. There are several times over the last 200 episodes that I thought I was right. I thought I was correct, only to find out that as more data came to light and as I studied more, I realized that I was actually mistaken. And you know what? That's okay. That's fine. It's good that we come to find out that we're mistaken because it means that we are discarding error that we thought was true. And we're learning and we're growing and we are maturing. So we need to be aware of those people who are very prideful and cocky with what they claim to know. This is the sort of guy that celebrates his failing grade on the test. Why would you celebrate that? There's nothing to celebrate in that regard. We know too little, and that means we need to be humble, we need to be patient, and we must be very, very careful. Point number five, we need to give time to those who are working through the facts. When we present truth to people, one of the things that I've realized is that most people do not change their mind overnight. I used to think that the most important truths needed to be forcibly pressed 
into the audience mind. They need to be shoved down their throats. We need to just yell and bang on the podium and just really, really forcibly project the importance of these truths. But now, I've come to realize that the important topics are actually effectively communicated when you teach them at a slower pace, when I teach them much more carefully, and when I teach them over a longer period of time. Because people need time to work through the facts. And this is because they need to come to realize two things. They need to realize, one, that their current position is mistaken, and two, what you are offering them is actually better than their current position. So you know what? Let's show some patience when we teach people and they don't immediately change their mind. Point number six. If you aren't successful in communicating your truth to others, look at yourself before you criticize your audience. I'm going to say that again. If you aren't successful in communicating your truth to others, look at yourself before you criticize your audience. There have been times when I thought that I reasonably communicated a concept to others, only to find out that I needed to explain certain things better and that the fault of the miscommunication was actually on me. Too often we try to speak truth and we don't see that our truth is immediately accepted and believed by those who hear. And I've seen this time and time again. I have seen preachers and teachers look at those who have not followed what they are saying and they blame the listeners. They blame the audience and they'll call them derogatory names. They will say, well, these people that didn't believe what I'm trying to tell them about the one true God and about Jesus being the human Messiah, they're dumb or they're blind, they're stupid, they've been brainwashed. I don't think that using these terms is a wise course of action. What if what we think is really true isn't persuasive to others because we aren't communicating things effectively. What if the fault lies with us? Now, you know what? It may be that the audience doesn't want to listen. It may be that the person with whom you are dialoguing just doesn't want to change their mind. That may be true. But to immediately look at the other person and to assume as an a priori that they are at fault when we are not able to effectively communicate our truth to others, I think is not the best course of action. We need to look at ourselves first because we can control what we say, how we say it, how we break it down, how we communicate it, with what speed, and all of those things. If others are not convinced of my truth, I need to examine myself first. I need to look at what I'm saying. Because what if I'm mistaken and the audience is just not persuaded by what I'm saying? What if I'm wrong, but I think that I'm right? What if I misspeak? What if I think that 
I am accurately breaking down a complex subject for my audience to understand, but I'm not breaking it down effectively enough. What if I am a poor communicator? Because this is something that's really important. I want you to listen to this. If something really is true, it will eventually come to light. If something is really true, eventually people are going to understand it and that is going to not be hidden. But I've really had to learn to look at myself when I'm not convincing to other people, maybe the fault lies with me. And that's going to be my go-to way of looking at things when I'm not effective at communicating change. Point number seven. Biblical words had meaning, and those meanings need clear definitions. Biblical words need to be defined. Because truth always, and I mean always, involves defining terms. And we need to strive to define our terms very carefully and very responsibly. Words have a certain meaning when you put them into their context. And within the Bible, we have a context that is a textual context. There is a social context of what's going on socially in the world around the writer and the audience. There is a religious context, whether that is an Israelite context, a Jewish context, an early Christian context, a Roman context. There's a historical context, what's going on in history, what happened a few years before, what happened afterwards, what's going on in this particular time, are we dating this text appropriately, what's going on politically, who is in charge, what nation is in charge, what leader is in charge, what king is sitting on the throne, what emperor is ruling at this particular time. We all know that there are certain words that have a meaning in the Bible that might not be the same meaning that is used in every single culture. We know that the word God has multiple meanings in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, even though in our culture, especially for those that live in the West, in the United States, God seems to really have one particular meaning, but it has a variety of meanings, and the lexicons point this out. We know that Lord has multiple meanings in the Old and New Testament. We know the word worship was a very, very flexible word, and it could be used for a variety of different persons. In our modern culture, worship really only has one meaning. The word kingdom, especially the various words that are translated into kingdom from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, is a widely flexible word that could mean realm, reign, and also kingdom, as in the location. Even gospel had a meaning with the Roman Empire and also among the early Christian church. There were two different meanings. So words need to be defined. These words had a meaning. We need to get back at that meaning. And that means we've got to do a little bit of homework. We need to make use of very good tools in order to define these words. If you are not adequately taught in these ancient languages, in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. And by adequately taught, I mean that you have been instructed at the undergraduate or the graduate level. Then we need to make use of 
good tools. I think also those that have been instructed already know to make use of these tools, so I'm just assuming that is going to be taken for granted. We have to make use of our best lexicons. For Greek, that would be the BDAG lexicon. B-D-A-G is the abbreviation. And for Hebrew, the Halot, the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. Now, you might go to Amazon.com and type these things out, BDAG lexicon or Halot lexicon for your Greek and your Hebrew and Aramaic, and you might see that, wow, these resources cost over $100. If that's not something that you can afford, then you need to go to your church and get those to buy them for the church and then just ask to peruse these very important resources when you are in need of looking up a word. Perhaps your pastor, if your pastor is very good at the biblical languages, already owns these resources, and you can just ask to borrow them. Say, hey, I want to understand what Adonai means in the Old Testament. Can I photocopy those pages out of the lexicon? This is so important because if we can't accurately convey the definition of words, then we can't get anywhere with convincing others with our truth. Point number eight. Just because a topic is complex does not give you the right to immediately dismiss it. I've noticed this so many times that there are complex, at least from our perspective, coming from the year 2021, reading passages that are 2,500 plus years old in these ancient biblical texts. And they are complex from our perspective, from our Western culture perspective, English-speaking perspective, postmodern perspective. And they look complex and we think, well, there's no way that could be what the text actually means because the Bible is supposed to be written to us. It's supposed to be simple, and God is not the author of confusion, and God would not want to confuse us with something that is complex, and so we immediately dismiss something that someone is saying, which might seem complex, because we want a simple, nice, easy-to-understand answer with a nice little bow around it. I've noticed this when teaching other people about wisdom Christology, which is complex because it involves looking at a variety of Jewish texts that talk about how these writers will look upon God's wisdom, personify it, and the way that that is communicated in poetic text, the way that this shows up in biblical text and extra-biblical text when we look at the writings of the intertestamental books, the Septuagint books, and to see how that sort of understanding was adopted by the writers of the New Testament and even by Jesus himself. Wisdom Christology is complex. I get it. I understand it. But just because it's complex and it takes a little bit more work to understand doesn't mean that it is wrong and that we should immediately discount it and overlook it perhaps for some other views and readings of text. I've seen this specifically with the reading of John 1 in Hebrews chapter 1, Colossians 1, various texts in 1 Corinthians. Wisdom Christology is complex, but just because it's complex doesn't mean that you can dismiss it. We've all seen that the topic of preexistence has a variety of nuances. Jewish writers knew that 
there were different ways of understanding preexistence. There was a notional preexistence within God's mind, plans, and purposes. And there were persons and even objects that were thought to actually, literally preexist. And Jews would be able to make a distinction between these things. So just because something is described as being before or occurring way back then or occurring in prehistory, that needs to be further defined. Preexistence is a complicated subject. And we know that readers will immediately just look at those texts and they will just read that into their own theological framework. Arguably, they tend to read it into a framework of the creeds of the Christian church. And that's unfortunate. That's mistaken. Topics are complex by nature. And there are some complicated topics in Scripture. Goodness, look at the concept of agency, which really shouldn't be that complex because we have agents and we have people that send other persons all the time in pretty much every culture. But agency was pretty much taken for granted within the Jewish culture of the first century and even prior to that. In the ancient Near East, the concept of the sender and the agent was just so common that it was just taken for granted. And we've tried to communicate these concepts to other people, and people will say, that doesn't make any sense, that's too complicated, that's too complex, and I'm going to go with what I think is a simpler reading. Just because something is complex doesn't necessarily mean that we have the right to dismiss it. The Bible may be trying to convey a complex subject, and so we need to demonstrate some humility when it comes to those topics, and we might have to put in a little bit of extra work to try to understand what is there. That's part of interpretation. Point nine, we need to learn to not get defensive when kind-hearted people come to us and try to show us where our truth might be mistaken. I've seen this time and time again. Person A will go to person B, and person A will say, hey, person B, I've noticed that you keep saying this, 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 and this, but I think you might be mistaken on a couple of points. Let me try to point out to you and help you on in seeing some of these points that might make a little bit more sense to you. And person B immediately gets defensive, they get standoffish, and they get prideful, and they get arrogant, and their insecurities come out. They aren't acting in humility. And person A is showing the courage to go to his brother and trying to help them out of their fault. They're showing love by going and trying to have that conversation, knowing that they could be rejected. And this is really important in regard to truth, something that we need to think about, is that truth needs to be more important than your appearance and your social standing. I'll say that again. Truth needs to be more important than the way that you appear to other people and your social standing. Some people will do everything they can to protect how they appear to other people and to protect their own social standing, even if that means that they fail to admit when they are wrong. But truth is more important than appearance and social standing. 
And the obstacle to this often is our own insecurities. We don't want to be wrong. We don't want to appear that we're wrong. We don't like it when people point out to us that we're mistaken. But remember, we know very little. And when someone comes and tries to help us, we need to demonstrate humility and not immediately get defensive. Because maybe they have some truth that we don't have. Maybe we have received some factually incorrect information from teachers whom we have trusted. We have to be aware of our insecurities and beware of any sort of opposition to changing to new truth that comes into our lives. Truth is very powerful and it has the power to change us. Don't let insecurities and pride and arrogance get in the way of kind-hearted, loving people helping us when they see that we're mistaken. And our tenth and final point, we need to learn to listen to other people. We need to become better listeners because we don't know everything. We don't know everything. In fact, there's more information out there that we don't know than the information that we do know. And the likelihood that somebody else knows something that you don't know is pretty high. God speaks to a lot of different people. God offers truth to a lot of different people. And it's almost certain that God has taught something to someone else that you don't know. And so you can learn from that person. We need to become better listeners. We need to listen to other people much more effectively. We need to read much more effectively. We need to study much more effectively. We need to listen to others, read from others, and study from others. And I'll just make this particular point because I know we're running out of time here. Most of what I know, I did not learn on my own. Most of what I know is something that I have actually stood on the shoulders of many others and learned from their wisdom. Very few things that I come to understand right now are from my own ingenuity and my own insight and my own intelligence. Most of it, and I mean the vast majority of it, I got from listening to other people, studying from other people, and reading other books. And you know what? You as a listener, it is almost certain that you know something that I don't know that I could benefit from. So I hope to learn from you. I hope to be a good listener to you. And I hope to learn from what you have learned. I hope to benefit from the truth that you have. So there you have it. Ten points about truth, the pursuit of truth, and why we need to continually pursue truth, even if we already understand the one true God and his human Messiah, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we look at how the New Testament portrays the true God as a single person in a way that is almost always overlooked by Biblical Unitarians. And if it's overlooked by Biblical Unitarians, it's probably overlooked by people who are not 
currently persuaded by the biblical Unitarian movement. So I'm going to show you a very interesting way in which the Greek portrays the only true God as one single person that is very easy to understand and very easy to communicate even if all you know is the English language. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. If you'd like to offer a donation, you may check out the episode description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks, please take care.